thank God for self-serving reasons. It gets your mind off of your troubles. It gets your mind on the things that God has provided for you. And so far, I've only been talking about things that you'd miss that are of a material nature. What about your salvation? What about the forgiveness of sins? What about this promise from Romans 6.14? Sin is no longer your master. It's not your master. If you believe that you're a slave to sin, you're believing a lie. You might say, well, I feel like a slave to sin. And if you don't know Christ, you are in fact a slave of sin, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 7. He talks about the, the amazing, incredible power of sin. He says, sin is so powerful that there's a bad thing you don't want to do, and you can't stop doing it to save your life. There's a good thing you want to do, you can't do it to save your life. But then, he says, who's going to deliver me from this dilemma? And he says, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Now, we Christians struggle with sin. We Christians struggle with temptation. Let's remember that temptation does not equal sin. But consent to temptation does. But when you are living in Christ, you have freedom available to you. If you continue in the Word, you're going to discover the truth. Right? Didn't Jesus say that? If you're, a, if you're a bona fide believer, if you're an authentic believer, he said, if you're truly my disciples, you're going to continue in my word. You're going to abide in my word. What's the noun version of abide? Abode. What's an abode? It's a house. It's where you live. What does abiding mean? It's, it's talking about where you live. If you abide in my word, not, not, you're not a visitor. If you abide in my word, you're going to discover the truth. The truth will set you free. That's a wonderful thing to be thankful for. And thank God for it before you feel free. Thank God for it because it's true whether you feel it or not. When I was a young person, there was a movement where, you know, a Jesus movement, just like you're experiencing now. And this brings me back in time to see people in your generation worshiping God with great intensity, praying passionately, hungry for the Word. It's, it's fabulous. And I remember one of the things that my generation was a little, I don't know, uh, excited about with buttons. And uh, there was this button that a lot of Christians wore that said, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settled it. And uh, I didn't like that button because I thought, and I still think, you could take the middle statement out, the statement that said, I believe it. Because I'd rather say God's word says it, that settles it. Mm -hmm. Whether you believe it or not, God's word is true. It's forever settled in heaven. And you can have what God's word says experientially. Let's remember, when you study the Bible, there should always be a so what added to what you're studying. When you you study Romans 6.14, sin is no longer my master, God wants you to have a theology of that. He wants you to have a biblical understanding of that. So that you can have a biblical experience of that. Isaiah 2.3 says, God will teach us His ways so that we can walk in His paths. God doesn't want me to just have a theology of freedom. He wants me to have an experience of freedom. So think of all the things that God's Word promises you, even if you have not yet experienced them. Go for them. Don't settle for less. And one of the ways to begin to move toward the experience of biblical truth is to write down what God's Word says is true about you. God's Word says you're a child. You might say, well, you know, I'm a servant of God, and I'd rather focus on being a servant than a son. Well, let me tell you something. You know, it's true. It's true. All of the apostles uh, introduced their letters with, you know, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, Peter, a bond servant, and so forth. That's great. 
but they were first and foremost sons. I have two sons, and uh, not that long ago, they went out to cut wood for the dad who burns wood. Mm-hmm. And uh, my boys are, are, are manly men, and they're tough guys, they're strong guys, and they like to work, and they work like beasts, and they just brought home gobs of, gobs of, of, of wood for me. Now, they're not servants. They're not hired guys. I wasn't paying them a wage. They are first and foremost sons. And I want to tell you that sons that love their father can outdo servants who are paid a wage any day of the week. So ask God to help you to understand what it means to be a daughter, what it means to be a son. If you're a child, you have access. You have immediate and direct access to God. Here's another promise. Read Hebrews 4.16. It says we boldly come before the throne of grace to find mercy to help in time of need. Romans 10.19 says, Therefore, through the blood of Jesus, we may enter the holy place. That means we can boldly come before the throne of grace to find mercy to help in time of need, because that's what the blood of Jesus affords me. Through the blood of Jesus, I have access. Divine justice has been satisfied. I'm accepted, Ephesians 1 tells me. I'm approved in the Beloved. Wow, these are things to just write down. What would happen? What would be different about your time alone with God if you just took a little break from petitions? And I'm all about petitions. I think petitions are great. We've been taught to bring our petitions to God. But what if we really dug into this idea for a season of just fixating on being thankful? Because the antidote to discontentedness is gratefulness. And gratefulness is cultivated by thankfulness. So we've got a warning against discontentedness. We've got a warning against even the desire to be rich. Be careful about the desire to be rich because the thing that that drives the desire to be rich is the misbelief that once I have wealth, I will have security. And God wants you to know that that belief is idolatrous. God wants you to know that He's the source of your security. And do you know that your default response when you face any problem is to go to your first source of security? If your first source of security when you get sick is the doctor, that's the first call you make. If your first source of security when you get sick is the Lord, the first call you make is to the elders of your church who are supposed to be called when you're sick to pray the prayer of faith to raise you up. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with calling a doctor. In fact, if you have a medical emergency uh, on your way to the emergency room, uh, call the elders of your church or call your friends who have a a gift of healing and ask them to pray for you, but get into the emergency room to get all the help that you need. I'm not an uh, anti-modern medicine guy at all. I just want to simply point out that our default response is always to our first source of security. When I have a headache, if the first thing I think of is ibuprofen, guess what my first source of security is when it comes to my health? When I face a financial need, if my first thought is, who can, who can I borrow money from? Mm-hmm. The, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with borrowing money. I, I want to make that very plain for you. The Bible does not prohibit borrowing money. It warns about borrowing money, but there's no prohibition against borrowing money. In fact, it tells you to count the cost if you're going to be a lender. But let's also re- remember that we're taught in the Scripture to lend money. And if it's wrong to borrow, then it's certainly wrong to lend because you're aiding and abetting the lender. (laughs) Plus, and you're going to have to correct me because it just escapes me. I think it was Elisha the prophet who told the widow, go borrow vessels. Mm -hmm. And God multiplied the oil, the oil that filled the vessels, 
that was multiplied in the vessels was sold and she was able to pay, pay off her creditors. So I, I don't want anybody here to feel any shame if you've borrowed money. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying, what's your first response? Does this make sense? Yes. Okay. So we have a warning against discontentedness. We have a, a warning against the desire to be rich because that desire is based on the misbelief that once I attain wealth, I will have security. And God wants us to know he's the source of our security. We have a, a warning against the very love of money. The love of money equals greed. Let me say something to you. God is not anti-wealth. He's anti-greed. Rick Warren has articulated it very well. He said, God gives affluence for influence. My personal belief is that God wants to increase your standard of, or excuse me, your income, not so much to increase your standard of living as much as to increase your standard of giving. So then we have a warning against the deception of finding security and wealth. And we also have a warning, look at verse 17, that things are not against the idea that things are not to be enjoyed. It says... We're not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In the Christian church, it seems that we tend to land on either extreme of any teaching. We seem to be hyper-prosperity people or anti-material people. And the more familiar you are with the Bible when it comes to the subject of money, the more you will stay away from either of those extremes. God wants us to hold on to all of the warnings and all of the promises. The Bible does say the blessing of the Lord makes a person rich and he adds no sorrow to it. It does say prosperity is the reward of the righteous. And if you look up the Hebrew, the word in the Hebrew for prosperity means prosperity. (laughs) The Bible tells us that the prototype of a New Testament believer, Abraham, was made rich by God in silver and gold and livestock. God is not anti-wealth. He's anti-greed. And God plans to transfer the wealth of the nations to his people. There's just piles of promises that teach us this. But he's not going to transfer the wealth of the nations into the hands of people who are looking at wealth as their source of security and their source of life. Because no matter how much you have, God wants us to know you and I are not owners or managers. A hundred percent of what we have belongs to the Lord. And so we need to say, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your money? And we want to be careful that we don't adopt a non-biblical attitude about material things so that we say, you know, granite countertops are not very spiritual. Snowmobiles, not, not very spiritual. Or no way, no way God would have you as a believer spend $120,000 on a car. Uh, He just might have you do that. Let me tell you why. There are people on Lake Minnetonka and elsewhere, there are are million-dollar homes around here, who need to be reached with the gospel. And people, almost without exception, are led to the Lord by people in their social circles. I'm not in those social circles. And that's just fine. I'm in the social circle where God wants me. But there are people that can afford a million-dollar home and are called to live in a million-dollar home. Mm -hmm. The man who led Chuck Colson to the Lord was a multimillionaire CEO of one of America's largest corporations. He was in place to make an impact on Chuck's life. 
you don't know who Chuck Colson is, best-selling author, advisor to uh, President Nixon, and ended up going to jail back in the days of the Watergate scandal, although I don't recall, I don't think he was personally implicated in that scandal. But my point is, we need to be very careful about the judgments we make about people's standard of living. And we need to be saying, Lord, if, if this person has the means to live that lifestyle and the calling to live that lifestyle, then help them to represent you in that lifestyle very well. So, God wants you to know things are to, uh, to be in, enjoyed, and uh, there's a warning against any idea that would undermine that. Now, let's just talk a little bit about some of the instructions, and then we'll wrap things up. Okay. Verse 11. Paul tells Timothy, after he's just warned him about the love of money and the desire to be rich, and... Uh, the deception of finding security and wealth. He gives him some instructions. You could also call these warnings. But he tells him to flee. In the original language, this, this can actually be translated to run in terror from. Flee these things. Flee from the love of money. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm washing my hands more than I typically wash my hands. I've got that little gel, uh, antibiotic gel that kills germs that I carry around in my car because of that H1N1 thing. I mean, yeah, I believe God, if I get infected, God could perform a miracle, but why not be as wise and as prudent as I can be? I'm a lot more concerned, however, about fleeing the virus of the love of money. Flee these things, you man of God. It would apply to women. Flee these things. Pursue. We're told to pursue certain things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Then we're told to fight. Fight what kind of fight? Yeah, the good fight of the faith. What's that look like? Well, it's a learning curve, isn't it? Yeah, and God will show us. And then um, we're also told uh, to keep the commandment, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach. You know, you know something that obedience is important to God? The word obedience and the word belief are used interchangeably in the book of Hebrews. And the word unbelief and the word disobedience are used interchangeably in the book of Hebrews. See, I believe in this statement, and it's not original with me. I believe that faith alone saves. But I believe that faith that saves is never alone. You see, James 2.26 says faith without works is what? Yeah. yeah, it could also be translated faith without corresponding life change or corresponding action. Is dead. Jesus said, if you love me, you, you will obey me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, it says, anyone who says, I know him, but doesn't obey him, says the, he's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. I was teaching a group of about 60 uh, college students who, who, who really love God, and we were exploring the idea that there's more than one vital sign to faith. In America, if you ask people, what's the vital sign of faith? I mean, how do you really know people believe? Almost everybody gets one of the answers right. And the answer that they always get right is, well, profession of faith. You know, you believe in your heart, you profess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, and 10 say, and, and, and you're saved, right, right, right on. I mean, but think about various things in the, in the material world that we, that just means I've got three minutes, okay, that, uh, that we recognize as, as life vital signs, right? Brainwave activity, pulse, you know, heart rate, are, are, you, are you breathing? 
And if, if somebody doesn't have those vital signs, a medical expert will say, okay, who's calling it? Somebody say, okay, he's dead. 12.25 a.m., he's dead. Nobody, nobody on the scene says, oh, judge not. Who are you to say he's dead? <laughs> no, nobody says that. There's no vital signs the guy's dead, right? <laughs> well, there's more than one vital sign of faith. It's actually possible, according to Titus, to profess to know God, but by your deeds to deny God. In Matthew 7, 21-23, Jesus said, Many are going to come to me on that day saying, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. You practiced lawlessness. In other words, you were chronically, willfully disobedient. So I had asked the students, I said, "Is there?" A, when we looked at the first passage, or excuse me, the first John 2-4 passage, if anyone says, I know him, but... Uh, doesn't obey him, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. I said, well, so is there another vital sign of faith? And you could feel the tension in the air. And people, I, I could tell they were choking over this reality. And I said, is what you're reading unclear or is it uncomfortable? And I, I, nobody said anything. I said, I, I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. God's word is so simple, you need help to misunderstand it. I'm talking about the basics. I know there are passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand, but the basic ideas are pretty clear. Disobedience is pretty, is pretty serious to God. Because when you're disobedient, you really, God bless you, don't have a disobedience deficiency, you have a love deficiency. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey me. But you also have a belief deficiency. Because belief is identified by obedience. And if you see a person who professes faith and is chronically and willfully disobedient, it is fair for you to respectfully say, I'm not buying your profession of faith as valid. I had a conversation with a gal like this who used to come to my church, but she took offense at what I said to her. She was chronically and blatantly, willfully disobedient. And she really talked the talk, man. I mean, she's pretty biblically informed, and I said... Sorry, I don't, I don't believe you're the real deal. I think you're an imposter. You know, John had strong words for people like you. He said, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. Oh, I love the Lord. I said, yeah, you love the Lord. You're not a part of his body. You're not committed to his people. I said, I don't see a New Testament profile of anybody who's a believer who lives in isolation from other believers. Do you? You know, the Alpha Course teaches us there's two things you can't do by yourself. You can't marry by yourself. You can't be a Christian by yourself. You need the body. Oh, yeah, somebody always brings up, well, what if you're in solitary confinement? You know? Okay. You got me. You got me. You're in solitary confinement. You don't have the opportunity to fellowship. But if you have the ability to fellowship and you have the opportunity to fellowship, you have the responsibility to fellowship. Do you not? That's a great word. Think of all the one another uh, texts in the Bible. Love one another. Forgive one another. You can't do those by yourself. So I said this to this gal. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to disrespect you, but I don't believe you love God. Because lo love for God looks like obedience. Jesus said that, not me. And then somebody always says, who are you to judge? So well, just a fellow Christian to whom Jesus said, don't judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. That's who I am. 
just a fellow Christian, but Paul said, don't judge those outside the church, judge those inside the church. And if you'll pay close attention to the text where Jesus said, judge not, in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, you'll see that he was talking specifically to hypocrites, to phonies, to whom he said, first take care of that log, and then you'll be in a condition, in a position to help others. Keep preaching. So, a uh, lot of, lot of uh, instructions here. Flee, pursue, fight. Keep the commandments. Set your, set your hope on God, not on riches. Do good. Be generous. Be ready to share. Let's close in prayer. Father, you're good. You're amazing. You're kind. You're merciful. You're full of love and forgiveness and grace. And, uh, and Lord, we don't do good works to be saved. We don't obey to be saved. We obey because we're saved. We believe that faith alone saves, but that Faith that saves is never alone. We believe that you are good. And Lord, we are inspired by your words to Paul that he passed along to Timothy. And would you cause them to grip our hearts. Help us to embrace the warnings and the instructions. Help us in this season of thanksgiving to truly cultivate gratefulness by being thankful. Help us to be thoughtful about all of the things you've done for us the material things and the spiritual things, to make our little list and to recite them to you. Lord, what a good thing it will be when we'll see how blessed we are, how rich we are. Your word says you've given us all things richly to enjoy. It says that you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and you've seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, far above all ruling power in every name that is named. We are so thankful. You are good. And we give you the glory and we give you the praise. God bless you. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor to be here with you. Appreciate you. Wow. Thank you for that word. Well, now this uh, is going to turn into a prayer room in here. And we want to just encourage you to get in groups of like two or three guys, guys, girls, and girls. Pray this word into our hearts that we would be people that that trust in the living God and store up those riches. And I'm still just being impacted by that word. It's so good. Um, and then there's going to be food out there and fellowship. And just a reminder, too, that there's an offering basket if you feel so led to give. Um, to community talks, goes to the food and missionaries and all sorts of good stuff. So, so yeah, break on three. Right. <laughs>